1966, Chicago Mayor Richard J. Daley announced that the first week of June would be known as Puerto Rican Week. One day after the fest's end, an incident near Division Street and Damon Avenue set off three days of upheaval between local Puerto Rican residents and Chicago police. This is the story of the Division Street riots of 1966. I'm Tommy Henry, and this is the Chicago History Podcast. I promise this is not gradually morphing into the History of Chicago Riots podcast, although after the Cicero Riots of 1951 I did with my pal Dilla a few episodes ago, last week's Republic Steel Riots, and now this one, it may seem like it. I have most of the rest of the season mapped out, and I do not believe any additional riots are part of it after this one, of course, which is timely as the anniversary of the key event is coming up. A general history lesson before we get more local. Puerto Rico became a United States territory in 1898 after the Spanish-American War. It was a colony from 1898 until 1952 when it became a commonwealth. The Jones Act, signed by President Woodrow Wilson in 1917, gave Puerto Ricans statutory citizenship in the U.S., allowing them to travel back and forth without restrictions. As early as 1930, Puerto Ricans made their way to Chicago, not directly from the island, but from New York. See New York? Even back then, everyone preferred Chicago. Many newly arrived settled on State Street, just south of the downtown hotels. Post-World War II, Puerto Rico was a bit of a mess, with high unemployment and overpopulation. Those looking for better opportunities thought they might find them in big U.S. cities. During the 1940s, Chicago-based employment agency Castle, Barton & Associates, based at 220 South State Street, began actively recruiting Puerto Ricans for low-paying domestic and mill work, even arranging three flights weekly to bring those interested to Chicago. A September 1946 article in the Reporter Times newspaper in Martinsville, Indiana, read, quote, Chicago housewives who have been coddling dishpan hands during the war period because of the domestic help shortage have only to call Castle Barton and Associates and vouch the 210 air transportation for a maid, end quote. The agencies Lon Barton and Marvin Castle would personally select the workers, who would be between 18 and 50 and be given physical examinations before leaving Puerto Rico. Chicago housewives were reportedly offering $60 monthly for maids. That's about $786 in today's money, $70 for houseboys, and $130 for couples plus room and board. The article went on to claim compensation in Puerto Rico rarely exceeded $30 monthly. 25% of men's paychecks were taken out automatically to be sent back to their dependents back in Puerto Rico. Each paycheck would also be docked $10 a month for 10 months in fees to Castle, Barton, and Associates. Whether the domestic workers had to pay back the airfare to their employer was up to the discretion of that employer. 
The Castle Barton and Associates Agency claimed to be, quote, swamped by demands for the servants, and quote, with only a few Chicago housewives concerned about the Spanish-English language barrier, although, quote, most housewives agreed that the language of the kitchen is universal, end quote. Boy. One writer for the Miami Herald wrote, quote, Brush up on your Spanish if you want to impress the new maid out at the Chicago North Shore home of Mrs. Gotrocks, end quote. For you youngins, Gotrocks was slang for rich person. By January of 1947, Castle Barton and Associates had brought in 400 women and 120 men from Puerto Rico. News sources noted two plants as utilizing the men, the Chicago Hardware and Foundry Company and the Inland Steel Company. One of the issues with which the companies were having trouble contending was finding suitable housing for the men. R.T. Franklin, assistant general manager of the Chicago Hardware and Foundry Company, told the International News Service, quote, We have no place to quarter them except in converted railroad cars alongside the plant, end quote. What Mr. Franklin left out here is that it was discovered that Chicago Hardware and Foundry Company was also accused of forcing the Puerto Rican workers to purchase their food and work clothes at the company's store, often at inflated prices. After various expenses were taken out, one man was reportedly left with 37 cents at the end of the week, less than $5 in today's money. In May of 1947, less than a year after the program started, Castle Barton and Associates announced they would no longer import workers from Puerto Rico, although newspapers seemed to word things to lead readers to believe the problem was with the women brought in to work the May jobs. Those who read more closely likely saw the true reason. An organization at the University of Chicago known as the United Student Progressives asserted that the imported help were working for low wages under poor working conditions. That organization's leader was Muna Munita Munas Lee, daughter of soon-to-be governor of Puerto Rico, Luis Munoz Marin. The employment agency denied the charge, oddly, after the announcement about stopping their importation of Puerto Rican women. The Castle Barton and Associates mentions in newspapers goes cold, including classified ads, which used to run pretty much daily. Also in 1947, the president of the Puerto Rican Senate, Luis Munoz Marin, developed a strategy to modernize Puerto Rico's economy called the Industrial Incentives Act of 1947, later referred to as Operation Bootstrap. While these initiatives had their supporters and detractors, they didn't happen right away. And with the Puerto Rican government encouraging its citizens to travel to the states to find work, and help reduce overpopulation on the island, many citizens did. These factors resulted in a significant exodus to the states, primarily New York, but also Chicago. The late 1940s wave of immigrants settled in a neighborhood around Dearborn, LaSalle, and Clark Street, just north of downtown called La Clark. More on that in a few minutes. Migration of Puerto Ricans to Chicago peaked in the 1950s and 1960s. 
The Puerto Rican population in Chicago in 1960, according to the U.S. Census, was 32,371. Many Puerto Ricans living in Chicago in the early 60s concentrated in Lincoln Park, Westtown, and Humboldt Park, sharing these neighborhoods with Polish, Mexican, and African-American families. Just 10 years later, in 1970, the number of Puerto Ricans would more than double to 78,963. In the early 1960s, a push to clear the buildings along Clark Street between Division and North Avenue was conceived. La Clark, primarily a Puerto Rican enclave, was scheduled to be bulldozed in favor of new, expensive high-rises called Carl Sandburg Village. New sources use the phrase urban renewal a lot, but if you read deeper, and I have links to books in the show's notes if you'd like to, the wealthy halves of the Gold Coast preferred a little more distance between themselves and the have-nots. One newspaper explained, quote, condemnation proceedings and public funds are used to clear slum areas for resale to private industry. Of course, there was no mention of the hardworking people who lived in the area now being uprooted. Ground for Carl Sandberg Village was broken on May 5th, 1962. Many residents of LeClark then moved west to Humboldt Park. In November of 1963, Julie Ann Lyman, a writer for the Chicago Tribune magazine, wrote a lengthy piece called The Harsh New World of Our Puerto Ricans, focused on Fernando Santiago, a steel mill worker, his wife and two children. The article detailed Santiago fleeing the island he called the Poorhouse of the Caribbean. He and his family lived in a building in Chicago called Porkchop Hill, a dirty yellow brick tenement. In the building lived 125 Puerto Rican families, 245 people total, crammed into 64 furnished apartments. The article discusses the family's faith and dedication to their church, but the main takeaway is just how hard their lives were and how little money was left after paying rent and food and for clothing. For a time, the Chicago media praised Puerto Ricans for their hardworking ways. In June of 1965, the Chicago Daily News ran an article titled Chicago's Proud Puerto Ricans, which read, Everyone who has seen West Side Story or reads the papers or has seen Spanish Harlem in New York knows there is a Puerto Rican problem. He can talk knowledgeably about gang fights and knives and five Puerto Ricans hanging themselves in New York jails and all of the other problems of the Spanish ghetto. It has been printed and reprinted that more Puerto Ricans, sick of subway knifings and dirty air and dirty tenements, are going back to Puerto Rico than are coming to New York. The surprising thing is that none of this is true in Chicago. In 1966, Mayor Richard J. Daley announced the first full week of June would be Puerto Rican Week. The week celebrations culminated with a parade held on the 11th through the Loop down State Street all the way to Congress Parkway with 54 floats, bands, and 10,000 marchers. Richard J. Daley was in attendance, as was Israel Naboa, executive director of the Spanish Civic Committee, and in the reviewing stands, seven mayors of Puerto Rican cities and the Speaker of the Puerto Rican House of Representatives. 
before that whole afternoon and well into the evening, this town belonged to the Puerto Ricans of Chicago. One day later, on the evening of Sunday, June 12, 1966, an altercation began between police and revelers near Damon Avenue and Division Street in the area known as La Division. Details as to what happened vary depending on the source, but initial reports quoted patrolman Thomas Runyon, a 25-year-old married father of two, as saying, quote, My partner and I went into this alley to break up a fight. This guy started to pull a gun from under his shirt, and I shot him. There were 10 or 15 persons in the alley, so my partner and I put the wounded man into the car and got out of there. Money went on to say he fired four times but didn't know how many shots hit the man who was wounded. The person shot was Arcelus Cruz, a 21-year-old Puerto Rican who was shot in the leg. The shooting inflamed those in the area and larger angry crowds began to form. More police were called to the area, including canine squads. A police dog bit 20-year-old Juan Milan, who was hoisted onto the shoulders of friends to display to the crowd before being taken to the hospital. Bottles, rocks, and other projectiles began to rain down on police directing traffic away from the area. Crowds grew larger. Spanish-speaking police, priests, and youth workers used bullhorns to try to calm the crowd and get them to go home. They were ignored. A rock smashed the windshield of a squad car, and a group of screaming youths busted out the windows of two other empty police cars, tearing the hood off of one. The youth then rocked the other police car back and forth until it turned on its side. Flames erupted from the gas tank. Black, greasy smoke billowed high above the street. The crowd had swelled to 4,000, those carrying bottles of gas with rags stuffed in the opening, often called Molotov cocktails, lit them and threw them into the street, igniting even more fires. Firemen arriving to put out the flames were also pelted with rocks. A hose was pulled from the hands of one fireman attempting to extinguish the burning police car. A woman and her three-year-old were knocked down in the melee, causing bruises. A Tribune photographer was knocked to the ground and kicked, his camera taken. Firecrackers and other fireworks exploded on the ground while several in the crowd chanted and waved Puerto Rican flags. After midnight, groups smashed windows along Division Street, including ones at a restaurant, a currency exchange, and a meat market. Youths broke into a cigar and candy store at 2761 West Division, busting up display racks and throwing merchandise onto the sidewalk. A jewelry store at 2714 West Division was looted. More than 100 police were sent to the area. At one point, the assistant deputy superintendent of police, John Hartnett, told the crowd he would pull the police back if the demonstrators agreed to go home. The police were removed from the area, but returned shortly when the crowds continued to riot. By 3 a.m., rains began to fall and crowds thinned. 19 people were hurt, 44 arrested, and Chicago could only wait to see what the next day would bring. On day two, more upheaval began around 7 p.m. Captain William Cosfield, commander of the Wood Street Police District, estimated 10,000 people were in the crowd. 
Hundreds of police were on hand but could do little to stop the protesters from wreaking havoc. Nearly every store along Division Street was damaged, many looted. Seven were shot and 37 were arrested in this second night's uprising. Friends and relatives of Arcelis Cruz bailed him out of the county jail. And policeman Thomas Munyon, responsible for shooting Cruz in the leg, requested a transfer to another district. After two nights of upheaval, Division Street between Damon and California was quiet on Wednesday, June 15th, helped in part by steady rain. Captain James Holzman, acting deputy chief of patrol, had more than 300 police in the area just in case there were further disturbances. Patrolman Raymond Howard, Thomas Munyon's partner the night Arcelis Cruz was shot, requested a transfer to another district and then promptly resigned from the police force. Walter C. Kurz, chairman of the Robert R. McCormick Charitable Trust, announced on June 21st of 1966 that the trust would contribute a major portion of the money to teach a number of Chicago policemen Spanish and about Spanish culture. Quote, the program will help create a better understanding between the Spanish-speaking community and the city, Kurz said. 150 police officers would take courses two hours a day, four days a week for two months. Both Mayor Richard J. Daly and Police Superintendent O.W. Wilson reportedly praised the contribution. Quote, This is a great demonstration by civic-minded people interested in solving the city's problems, Daly said. This will be a tremendous aid in community relationship. I know that with the core of Spanish-speaking policemen, the lack of communication, which I understand was one of the major difficulties encountered in the recent disturbances, will be overcome, end quote. The Division Street Uprising helped bring about more awareness of the plight of Puerto Ricans in Chicago. It also helped create various Puerto Rican community organizations, such as the Spanish Action Committee of Chicago and the Latin American Defense Organization. It also helped bring about better diversity and hiring for the Chicago Police Department. One month after the riot, the Chicago Commission on Human Relations held open hearings, which provided a forum for Spanish-speaking residents of Chicago, including Puerto Ricans, to discuss problems facing these communities, including housing discrimination, hiring practices by the police and fire departments, and poor educational opportunities. These meetings bore fruit. Specific policy recommendations were proposed and implemented in the Puerto Rican community. Sadly, this was not the last time a police shooting led to a rebellion by Chicago's Puerto Ricans. Nearly 11 years later, on June 4, 1977, a second uprising on Division erupted after police shot and killed two youths, Rafael Cruz and Julio Osorio. 85 people were injured by police violence and 120 were arrested for their resistance. The Puerto Rican People's Parade, which was first held in 1978, was reportedly created in response to this event. The Puerto Rican population of Chicago has decreased over the years, with many moving to the suburbs or to other cities with stronger industrial hiring. Those that remain still maintain a strong presence, not far from where the Division Street riots occurred. Paseo Boricua on Division Street between Western Avenue and California in Chicago is the only officially recognized Puerto Rican neighborhood in the nation. 
Even New York City, with its sizable Puerto Rican population, does not have, as of this writing, an officially designated Puerto Rican neighborhood. In 1995, through a public art project, two 59-foot-tall Puerto Rican flags made of steel were installed on both ends of the street. If you see the flag, you know you're in the right spot. Famous Puerto Rican baseball player Roberto Clemente is honored in the neighborhood with a high school bearing his name and a tiled mosaic. Also in Humboldt Park, where many Puerto Ricans reside, is the National Museum of Puerto Rican Arts and Culture, the only self-standing museum in the nation devoted to showcasing Puerto Rican arts and cultural exhibitions all year round. It is housed in the historic Humboldt Park Stables and Receptory, an iconic building that has been culturally and historically significant to Chicago since it was built in 1893. Thanks for listening to today's episode about the Division Street Riots of 1966. If you have questions about anything covered today, anything to add, or have an idea for a future episode, I'd love to hear about it. Send me an email at chicagohistorypod at gmail.com. In the show's notes are links to books I'd recommend if you'd like to learn more about these subjects. I will have plenty of news clippings and photos I'll post on social media throughout the week. If you are on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter, please give us a follow. Also, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen and tell a friend about us. Always appreciate that. The original art for the Chicago History Podcast used on the social media pages was created by John K. Schneider. Thanks, Johnny. He can be found at AngelEyesArtJKS on Instagram or via email at AngelEyesArtJKS jks at gmail.com I will be back next week with another chapter in Chicago's history. Until then, get out and explore when possible. Now that you know the history of the area, make your way to Division Street and Paseo Bariqua. Learn more about whatever city you live in. I'll also learn some Spanish and stay safe. <laughs>